Well, we're about two weeks away at King of Glory of probably the biggest decision that we've made as a church body up to this point, a decision that will uh, have lasting implications on who we are and what we do as a congregation. Therefore, my goal today is to provide some context and clarity for the reason behind the decision that we are pushing for. Basically, I want to provide some perspective. It's hard to have a good constructive conversation about the decision until we can understand the perspective behind the ones pushing the decision. I don't come this morning and, and lay out the message and the vision for the purpose of squelching conversation. My goal is not to say, hey, this is the way it is, and don't say anything. I want to have hard conversations. I don't mind wrestling around tough ideas, but I want to wrestle around the right ideas. I want to have tough conversations about things that we should have tough conversations about. My job over the next two weeks, and I can say this and you can believe me, not believe me, however it works out, my job is not to convince everyone of my personal opinion. I obviously have an opinion that I believe is directed from God and, and Scripture in time of reflection. And I'm going to lay that out clearly. I just You're going to get what you hear. Thing. I'm not going to be calling people during the week, rallying voters. I'm, not, I'm just going to lay it out. This is where I'm at. And this is the energy you're going to get from me, and this is where I'm going to be pushing as long as I am here. But my job is not to convince people of my opinion. My job is to find the best decision for King of Glory. Even if sometimes that goes against my opinion. And that's what I'm working for. What is in the best interest of King of Glory? Therefore, I have to say, what is in the interest of the King of Glory? That's what I want to share with you this morning. We're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to start with an area where we probably normally don't start at it. I just want to take a moment and uh, do something that we don't often do in the church, and that's uh, be honest. Right? I mean, the church is really good at just glossing over everything and saying, here, I just want to take a moment and be honest. And I'm not sharing opinion for the next five, the next while I'm not sharing opinion. I'm sharing straight facts. So there's been a book that's been written recently and laid out the decline of American evangelicalism. I believe that's where we've got to start. We've got to understand what reality is. Jim Collins has written a book called Good to Great. He's done a lot of study. He says, All good to great companies began the process of finding a path to greatness by confronting the brutal facts of their current reality. It is impossible to make good decisions without infusing the entire process with an honest confrontation of the brutal facts. My goal right now is not to depress everyone. Oh my gosh. My goal is to simply lay out the facts. So what is reality? First thing is this. Evangelical Christianity in America is dying. It is in a serious decline. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is clear. Any statistician that you talk about, Christian, non-Christian, they come up with maybe evangelicals now maybe make up 9% of society. And numbers are all over the map, but it's in serious decline. Everybody kicks back against this and says, no way, look at these churches that are growing rapidly. It, it sends up a false image. It's not anywhere keeping up with population growth. The American evangelicalism is dying. And then the second piece is, should cause everybody in this room to boil. Two out of every three evangelical children that are raised in an evangelical home do not return to the church. These are kids who for 18 years 
listen to sermons on Sunday morning and they are not coming back. This is not, oh, pastor, settle down. They're just sowing their roots and they're going to come back. <laughs> they're not coming back. This is statistical fact. Two out of three. And then when you take it to mainline denominations, only one out of five are coming back. So what do they want when they come back? They don't want their parents' or their grandparents' church. The next generation has made it clear. They're sick and tired of a church that's doing non-church stuff and full of hypocrisy. I've used this example before, but it comes right from all of these books. Young generations are sick of churches arguing about carpet color and buildings. They want churches that are focused, it's the same fact, they want churches that are want on focused on serving, living out what they say. That's where they're going. They want a place that looks different, feels different, does business differently. I'm not arguing this morning at all for let's change the message. Absolutely not. We are not changing the message. And then the third fact, which maybe should get me fired, and I don't say that lightly, is that since King of Glory has started, there's been no conversion baptisms at King of Glory. We've baptized some infants, absolutely. But since we've started, we've not had one baptism of someone who was unchurched joining the Christian community. I'm not starting an argument about baptism today. There's plenty of adults, children in our community that have never been baptized. The Bible does not say, hey, baptize infants, and if they don't get baptized as an infant, don't worry about it. Baptism is a sign of a greater problem. We've not had one since we started King of Glory. This other next thing is a reality is a fact. You might say, this isn't bad news. This is just reality that I want to share. Sioux Falls has a plethora of faithful churches, and we are all on the same team. Every Sunday morning when I get up and I'm on my way to church, I pray for five churches every Sunday. I pray for Abiding Savior Free Lutheran Church. I pray for Faith Baptist Church. I pray for Living Word Church. I pray for Memorial Lutheran Church, and I pray for First Evangelical Free Church. I pray for all of them. All of them teach the Bible every Sunday morning better than I do. All of them have fantastic programs week to week. I pray that God would fill those places. And in none of those places are they putting up a sign that says, no vacancy. We're on the exact same team as them. And the reason I share that is this, that if we're going to do the same thing as them, why? And I mean this with all honesty. And the only answer I can come up with is pride that we think we can do it better. If we're going to do the same thing, let's go share resources and do it together and honor Jesus. At the same time that Sioux Falls has a variety of plethora of churches, there's also a harsh reality that Sioux Falls has a vast economic and cultural challenges. Sioux Falls has been named the booming city multiple times, but there is a hidden part of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And it's, again, straight fact. If you look right now in the current elementary school program in the city of Sioux Falls, 49% of the kids are on reduced or free lunch in the school program. The economy is booming in Sioux Falls, but the poor are booming at the exact same rate, if not faster. And not only that, but the culture in Sioux Falls is shifting dramatically. A couple of months ago, weeks ago, my wife's birthday, went to the mall on a Friday night, like, oh, torture thing. You walk into the, walk into the mall, right? I walked into the mall, and I'm going, 
is this Sioux Falls? And I'm not exaggerating. I'm a little old white boy here who I think I know the city pretty well. I walked in. It was a completely different experience. Age 18 to 30, it was a crowd I'm never around or never with. And then I asked the question, does our church look at all like that culture? I get, Whoa. We don't reflect our city at all. When I look at the hardcore facts of the current reality, the current situation, one thing basically comes to mind. That's that reality conflicts with the heart of Jesus. That what's happening currently is not the desire of the king of the universe. And therefore, if this statement is true, if we agree that reality conflicts with the heart of Jesus, then we should agree with the next thing. Doing more of the same is unacceptable. Right? And that's in very simple terms, doing the same thing and expecting different results is... And we would agree on that, right? <laughs> so to do more of the same and expect different results as a church, we don't want to say it. We all want to say, Pastor, just keep trying, Pastor Rich. You're good-hearted. You work hard. Just keep trying. It's okay. Doing more of the same and expect <laughs> is insane. But for some reason, when we get in the church world, we just... Yeah, we can keep doing more of the same. And this applies too. So to do more of the same, what's already be done in Sioux Falls and expect different results is what? Insanity. <laughs> I want to argue this morning that because reality conflicts with the heart of Jesus, that we cannot continue on the normal path. We cannot continue on the same path. So let's take a moment and try and understand the heart of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you to turn with your, in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, beginning with the first verse. Luke 15, beginning with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just the same, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let us pray. God, have your way with us. Take your word and shape our thinking. In Jesus' name. Amen. You become who you hang out with. Watch out what company you keep because you might become like your company. How many of you heard that as a teenager thing or have told that to your teenagers, right? Well, Mary and Joseph must have missed that episode of Focus on the Family. And they forgot to tell Jesus to watch the company that he keeps. Because the company that Jesus is keeping is a little challenging, we could say. 
And this isn't just a one-time deal where Jesus is keeping the company of those who would be considered outcasts, those who would not be acceptable in normal society. So is Jesus making a mistake? Is Jesus keeping company that he should not keep? Actually, the reason Jesus is keeping the company that he keeps is because Jesus is engaged in the mission of his heavenly Father of reaching the lost and bringing restoration to them. Jesus is, in, is actually intentionally keeping the company that he's keeping. And this is not a one-time event for Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you see it multiple times where the religious leaders are murmuring, what is, what's this guy doing? Other times, hey, uh, Jesus, do you know who's washing your feet right now? Time and time again, we see the religious leaders going, Jesus, can you take your crowd maybe to the outer courts? And not only that then, do we see Jesus routinely keeping this company, but routinely Jesus makes a clear statement about his purpose. So it's not just this one time in Luke 15 where Jesus lays out a very pointed story, but rather multiple times he makes the statement, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Luke chapter 19, one of the most famous stories, Zacchaeus, we all know it, right? Zacchaeus, wee little man, tree, Well, the whole point of the story is not some guy on a tree seeing Jesus. It finishes with Jesus saying, For I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus is a picture of Jesus living out his mission. Jesus is on a mission of reaching the lost. The the basic way of saying it is that Jesus' heart is to see the lost be restored. This is the heart of Jesus. He wants to see people returned to a relationship with the creator of the universe. The heart of Jesus is to keep company with people most would not want to keep company with. Because the heart of Jesus is to reach out to them and restore them where they can experience peace through a relationship with the creator of the universe. And these parables for us this morning unpack this. Let's just take a moment and try and understand what Jesus is saying in each of these parables. For a moment, a lot of times when we read stuff from Jesus, we kind of say, well, Jesus is saying it. I mean, he's stretching just a little bit. These parables, when you look at they don't make any sense at all. So the first one he says, hey, there's yet a hundred sheep. You're watching over your hundred sheep. And remember, when they have sheep, they don't have nice little pens that they're keeping them at, at their farm lot. When they have sheep, they're out on the mountainside and they're just roaming around. So you've got a hundred sheep and Jesus says, one of them ro- just kind of goes off. And Jesus says, what are you going to do? The normal answer would be what? I'm going to let the one go. I've got to stay and protect the 99 thing. So, but Jesus says, well, you'd go after the one. When in reality, if you heard this story, you'd say, yeah, well, you, you won't go after the one because what? You're not leaving the 99 in a nice, tidy little pen. You're leaving the 99 in the wide open. Yet Jesus goes after the one. Why in the world would you go after the one? There can only be one reason. Because you know the one is in danger. This morning, do we recognize the danger that the one is in? For the most part, the majority of us live our day-to-day lives without the perspective of heaven and hell. 
This last week I had a phone call. Every other week I try and have a phone call with a missionary down in Juarez, Mexico, works at a place called Amigo Fiel. We spent some time down there years ago, and uh, we just call each other and encourage one another, share some scripture and prayer, and uh, try and find ways to, to help him, however that can be. Well, we talked this last week, and he calls me and says, hey, what's going on? I said, well, in the middle of church work thing. So he asked me, well, what are you in the middle of church work for? And I said, oh, trying to figure out this building situation, da, da, da. And then he goes, well, what are you losing sleep over thing? I said, well, we've got, we got some people that maybe aren't happy and trying to please, trying to get everyone happy thing. And then I said to him, I said, well, what are you losing sleep over thing? He says, well, I'm trying to keep a couple people alive right now thing. If you know anything about Juarez, Mexico, you know that it's almost a mini war in Juarez, Mexico. The place is like drug capital of the world. They say it's improved over the last two years because now they're down to two homicides a day. Previously, in the last five years, they're up to about 3,000 murders a year. I mean, this place is out of control. If you just go Google Juarez, it's like craziness. And so he spent some time unpacking for me that he's trying to save people. And he says, hey, you know what? What I'm concerned about? I'm concerned about making sure these people have an eternal destiny. And he says, hey, are you concerned about the lostness of the lost? The lostness of the lost thing. When's the last time any of us lost sleep over the fact that one of our acquaintances might be destined for hell? When's the last time you really wrestled with the lostness of the lost? We usually get stressed out about what? Unity, peace, comfort, finances. Have we ever lost sleep over the lostness of the lost? We started a church three years ago about when we started that church, some of us, some not us, but some may think we started that church about sex. We started a church that had that was not about sex at all. What's the reason the church started was an issue of authority. Who has the final word? The issue was about the authority of Scripture. Well, now we've got a chance to play that out and say, do we truly believe that Scripture is authoritative? If we truly believe Scripture is authoritative, we're going to change our current perspective because we're going to take into consideration heaven and hell. You see, when you take into consideration heaven and hell, when you realize the reality of heaven and hell, it completely changes your current perspective. I'll be honest. I've spent very little time actually going thinking about my life outside of Christ. I don't know life outside of Christ, really. I was blessed to grow up in a home, and so I don't know what it's like to not have Christ. But to not have Christ according to the Bible is to not have life, is to be under condemnation, is to be under wrath. I want God to break our hearts that there are people in this city who are under condemnation and the wrath of God. The reality of heaven and hell should change our current perspective. Chuck Swindoll says it best. He says, you don't minister to a dying nation without feeling the death pangs in yourself. In other words, we've got to come to the realization of what life without Christ is like. Let that burden our hearts 
And then we can begin to minister appropriately in our culture. John prayed it. Break our hearts for what breaks the heart of the Lord. There's only one reason to leave the 99. That's if the one is in danger and what? You love the one. How many of you this morning have ever seen your children in danger and you've done everything in your power to do what? Help them get out of danger. Wave flags in front of them. At other times, literally go and just remove them from the danger. And some of you have even made foolish decisions because your kids are in danger. I've seen it. Parents have kids that have made a bad financial decision. So what do parents do? They don't want to see their kid flounder, so they step in and they make a sacrifice. Why? Because they love their child and they see the impending danger for their child. There is an impending danger for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. The question is, do we see the danger and do we love enough to do something about it? Would we be willing to make a foolish decision not to save our kids from financial ruin, but would we be willing to make a foolish decision for the sake of trying to reach one person for the good news of Jesus Christ? Jesus leaves the 99 because he knows the one is in danger. And then he goes on to tell the next parable, which again, just doesn't make sense. Jesus says, hey, a woman's lost one coin out of ten. And then she starts searching, she finds the one coin, and then what does she do? She throws a party for the one coin. So here you have a party that costs three coin for finding one. Why? Because what you found is so magnificent. If I told all of you right now, if I said, hey, while we were in worship right now, I had my assistant hide a million dollars in each of your homes. What would you do when you get home? You'd tear the place apart. Some of you would actually get up and leave right now. Thing. <laughs> and then after you found a million dollars, you'd throw a party. Because a million dollars, right? A million dollars. Thing. We would do a whole lot for a million dollars. And we would celebrate a million dollars but a million dollars cannot buy eternal peace and eternal joy. Would we be willing to celebrate and risk for eternal and peace and eternal joy like we would for a million dollars? Jesus basically tells in these two stories, hey, do everything you can to reach out to the one lost, even if it's just one, and look how much it's worth to reach just one. I pray that we become a one-by-one church. We would say, we're just going to grow one by one because one is worth it. One is worth it. Jesus' heart is to reach out to the lost. And if that's Jesus' heart, then we've got a serious question before us. And it's a question that our leadership asked themselves about a month ago in a leadership retreat. We had one of the best church meetings ever. I'm happy to report. You know how most church meetings go? You talk and then everybody leaves and then what happens? Talk some more in the hallway, right? And then call each other when you get home. We actually had a church meeting where everybody talked and we put everything on the table. And it was clear that there's a bundle of different things going on. So we finished the night by saying, hey, there's two options before us. So question number one was, should we, should the lost be our primary target right now at King of Glory? Now this does not mean, oh, hey, we don't want any Christians. If you're a Christian, don't walk in. We're not going to say that to someone. But primary target means we make decisions for the purpose of the person who's lost. Or we said, hey, should we build ourselves up in order to be a rescue hospital down the road? 
So everybody went home that night, said, hey, take the night, think about it, pray about it, come back. They came back the next morning, just said, all right, everybody, what do you think? As we started to share, it became obvious and clear that everybody's heart said, the lost should be our primary target right now. And I don't mean it in the sense that everybody was like, yes, right now, let's go. It was in the sense of, we know this is the right thing to do. We don't know how to do it, and we don't know what's going to happen if we try to do it, but we know this is the right thing to do. So there was a great deal of humility, a great deal of honesty, but there was also, I believe, a great deal of compassion that said, this is what we want to do. And so therefore, the leadership said, yes, let's go after the lost. Let's make them the primary target. Well, (laughs) now we come to the fruit thing of that decision. And if the lost are going to be the primary target, something crazy is going to happen to us. A concept I learned about 10 years ago. We're going to experience some transplant shock. About 10 years ago or so, or longer than that, when I was in high school, I was working at a golf course. And when I was working at this golf course, every summer they'd be like, hey, we're going to move a couple trees from there over by that green. And I always thought, this is horrible planning. Who comes up with this stuff? But anyhow, went first time I did it, I went and dug up the tree. I thought, this is easy enough. Dig another tree over here. So I started digging the hole for that other tree. The greenskeeper comes over and he says, well, hold on here a little bit. He says, that tree's going to go and transplant shock. Transplant what? Thing. And he goes on to explain, hey, you can't just move a tree from one place to the other because the roots are being uprooted and all of this. You've got to do it in a certain way where the roots can reestablish themselves. A lot of times there's transplant shock and then they don't reestablish themselves and some, nothing happens. And he says a lot of times what happens is trees get wet feet. Wet feet? What do you mean by wet feet? He says you take all of the dirt that has all the nutrients in it. So you think you're doing something good by planting the tree in a hole with a bunch of nutrients. But he says what happens is the roots stop right there around all of those nutrients rather than going down and actually rerooting themselves. He says every tree undergoes transplant shock because it's a whole new system. I'm just going to be frank and very honest. There's going to be transplant shock for us. A whole new system, a whole new way of of doing things, a different experience, a different feel. There's going to be transplant shock. Yet, in the midst of transplant shock, there's two things that we should hold on to tightly. The second one more than the first one, but the first reason we should be willing to undergo transplant shock is that we go together, right? I mean, we know each other. We've got a group. Is the group going to all stay together? Probably not. I'm just, again, I'm being honest. But we do have a group that knows one another. We're not going into the situation like, i got to figure this out alone. What are we going to do? <laughs> We're going together. We've got community. We've got the body of Christ for support. But the other reason that transplant shock should not scare us, and more importantly, is this. Jesus has not changed, and he is with us. He finishes in Matthew chapter 28 of saying, go and make disciples, and I will be with you to the end of the age. I remember we were leaving Good Sam, going to Sioux Falls Christian, everybody's like, oh man, we'll love round tables. Do you think we can get round tables at the cafeteria thing? And then we were going to go from the cafeteria to the gym, and well, the gym doesn't have any windows. And can we really worship in a gym? And every time, what have we done? Worshipped. 
Because Jesus does not change. And he is with us. There's going to be transplant shock. There's going to be shakeup. But we have one another as the body of Christ. And more importantly, our, our security is not going to change. We've got Christ. So therefore, if we're going to go after the lost, if there's going to be transplant shock, that brings us to the lumberyard. Oh boy, thing. A lumberyard, what are you people thinking? Thing. What I wanted to convince this, not convince, but lay out is the perspective behind the lumberyard. I want to make something very clear this morning. I will not stand for people saying this is a poor church and the reason we are going here is because we are a poor church and we cannot afford anything else. That is a dishonor to God to say that we are a poor church and we don't have the resources we need. You're basically saying to God, God, you have not provided the resources your people need. We are not a poor church. We are a wealthy church. We have got more than you can even imagine. And how dare us even say that we would do something because we are poor. We've got every resource we need. We are not pushing for this because we're poor. We're pushing for this because of a perspective that says we want to make a shift in who we are. And it's going to be a transplant shock. But Jesus is with us. It's unacceptable to have that mindset anymore. So over the next couple of weeks, we may not end up at the lumberyard, and I'm going to be, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that if the inspection comes back and says, hey, the roof's going to collapse in two years. Or I'm fine with that if we say, hey, this is not good financial stewardship. We could use our resources and reach more lost if we did X. I want to have that conversation. I want to argue about that. I don't want to argue about the color of the building. Because someone pulling up on Sunday morning is not going to turn around and leave because of the color of the building. If they do, I'm going to be bluntly honest. I don't want them at our church. Let's argue about the mission of how we're going to reach more lost and how we're going to be faithful with what God has given us. And so I'm going to ask for a favor over the next two weeks. I'm not asking you to say, oh, yep, all in, Rich, here we go, just do whatever. No, let's challenge one another, let's talk, and then let's just be very simple and say, we disagree. And then continue to seek peace with one another, even in the midst of disagreement. That's fine. It's absolutely fine. But I am going to hold the line. I'm not going to hold the line on the lumberyard. I am going to hold the line on the lost. I will not waver on this. And my prayer is that you would not waver as well. And we would go forward together. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity of working with the furniture mission here in Sioux Falls that takes beds and couches to people's homes. The weeknight went and delivered some couches and beds to somebody's home. And we had done this multiple times. Multiple times you show up and it's just kids that are home. This time was different. The kids were definitely under the age five. And was not right. Drop off the furniture, leave, and I just, something was not right. So I thought to myself, how can I get back in that door thing? So I went back two days later made up some weird story that we forgot to drop something off, came back, and the mom was home this time. Mom answers the door, and I explain who I am, delivered furniture, and I said, just want to check in. Everything okay? Need anything? 
da, 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 da. and um, she said, oh, I'm so sorry, I was work, at work the other night. She's, she's from a different country, so language was a little bit of a barrier. She kept saying, work, work, and I, I said, oh, I'm so happy that you have a job. That's fabulous, and, and what about your children while you're at your job? And Nothing, no response. And so then I said, well, what do you do for your job? No response, nothing. I, you know, I'm trying to think the best way to do this. What do you do? Finally, she just starts crying. Starts crying. And then she tries to say, and she says, sell myself. I wasn't in Chicago or Detroit. I was in downtown Sioux Falls. When I first uh, did that, and she said, sell yourself, my first thought, honest, was, oh, really? I mean, come on, better than that. But then I did some reflecting. And it all changed when I had my own kid. They say it changes, and you're like, ah, it's nothing that much, and then it changes thing. And I started thinking about it. If I was put in the exact same position, I had to provide for my daughter, I would do the exact same thing. Maybe I'd be selling drugs, I don't know. But I, I wish I could say I'd do the right thing. But at the end of the day, I, I know I'd do the exact same thing. And it changed my perspective of why she did it. She did it out of desperation and love. And you would do the exact same thing and I would do the exact same thing to provide for our kids. Because we love them, we would do whatever it would take to provide simple necessities for them. Out of desperation and love, she does the unthinkable. My prayer is that out of desperation and love, we would do the unthinkable to reach out to the desperate. My question is this. Where's that woman going to go to church? I'm going to be very frank. She's not driving to 69th Street and going through a nice building. It's just the honest reflection of how socioeconomics work. And I'm not saying if we go here, she's just automatically going to walk in. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's the start of a process of providing the opportunity for that. At home, we've been trying to teach the game hide-and-seek lately thing. It's got moments of success and moments of pain thing. And usually the first round goes pretty well. I go and hide and she kind of does this and counts to, counts to three and then comes and finds me and I make all of my weird animal noises. And then I, I go and hide again and I start making my weird animal noises and no one's coming. Well, then I walk out. She's on the iPad at the couch thing. <laughs> Hello, I'm over here. She doesn't seem to hear the mooing and the quacking. Today, there's a lot of mooing and quacking in our city. People not saying, hey, I want to go to church, but people making decisions of, I'm going to sell myself to provide for my kids. The question is, will we play with the iPad or will we actually enter into pursuit? I'm scared. Thing. I mean, I hate failure. I am competitive to the bone. I drive myself on people thinking that I'm successful and appreciating my hard work. I hate failure. It drives me. And I am scared. 
thing. I got no idea if this will work thing. But actually, I feel like I'm scared for the right reasons thing. And there's something that scares me a whole lot more. That's my kid. I've honestly given consideration to hang it up as a pastor because of the two out of three statistic. It scares me to death to think that my own child might walk away someday. And therefore, I want to do everything I can to create an experience in a place where my child will hear the good news and see something lived out in genuineness. And then the second part of being scared about my child is this. I am scared about going to the lumber yard for my kid. I'm scared that we're going to be a smaller church for a long time as we reach one by one. I'm scared that we're not going to grow and have all of the fancy stuff for my kid. I want my kid to grow up with 20 kids in her Sunday school class. It scares me that that might not happen. And, and I've got to think of my kid first. I, think I say to myself, no, I've got to think of mission first. But in reality... My kid wins at the end of the day. I'm scared, but here's what I'm confident of. That my kid might not have the normal church experience. That my kid might not have 20 in her Sunday school class, but I'm confident that my kid will have the best aunts and uncles and grandparents that any kid will ever have. And it's that that will bring them back. People pouring into them and loving them. I'm scared. But I hope we all would be scared at the greater reality of hell. I pray that we would respond. Maybe not to the lumberyard. We're going to talk about that. But I would pray we would respond in some way like that as we answer the question, the simple question, will we do something that reflects the heart of Jesus? Will we do something that reflects the heart of Jesus? Or in other words, will we cause celebration in heaven? I'm a party animal. I love to throw a good party. I love to have people over. You know what? I want heaven to be rejoicing. I think Luke 15 is right on the money. I don't think Jesus is mincing words. I believe that they have a party in heaven when the lost are found. I believe there is great celebration. I want them to have a party in heaven because of King of Glory. I want to cause celebration. Will we do something that reflects the heart of Jesus? Will we be a church that causes celebration in heaven.